Okay, hello everybody. It is the weekend now, but on the weekends I've been doing the AMAs, the Ask Me Anything, where I respond to your questions and comments. We go through the material together and have a discussion. Normally these things were coming out on Wednesdays, but because of some time constraints, I'm putting them out on the weekend. Anyway, welcome to the show. You guys were leaving a lot of excellent comments, and I do really appreciate everyone who watched last week's weekend episode about Jack Tarrin. Some Sometimes I'm going to be doing the AMAs, sometimes I'm going to be doing the Zodiac Killer debunked series. A lot of great comments came in on that one, and uh, I appreciate everyone who responded. And as always, you can download this show for free at Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. And a great way to support the channel, in addition to just listening to some content, is to go over to Amazon.com and have a look at the book Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned Dahan. It's a novel, murder mystery, inspired by the Zodiac Manson connection, but it is fictional. And there is always the Teespring page. Feel free to have a look at some of the merchandise, and remember, being weird is not a crime. Now, back when I did that Halloween episode, I threw in an icebreaker question, and it was something that I heard on the show The Rational Mail that was about... Can you name a TV dad who is both a husband and father and not fitting into one of these three categories? The dumb dad, the beta male schlep. I think I really do think they said beta male schlump, but Colonel Reb pointed out it was probably beta male schlep. Okay, the beta male schlep, or the borderline abuser. And um, the examples that they give, the dumb dad is like the Homer Simpsons or the Peter Griffin from Family Guy. And I brought up the point about how Anthony Anderson's character on Blackish is a good example of a beta male schlep, whatever that is. And um, But like the beta male father where he's very emotional, gets his feelings hurt easily, and his wife does a lot of the traditionally masculine activities. And the borderline abuser, I think, speaks for itself. And the challenge question is, can you think of a character that is both a husband and a father and also is outside of those three categories? Shaper Art responded to that challenge question by saying, Hank Hill does not fit into any of these stupid dad stereotypes, one of the best characters of all time. And I think that's an excellent response because even if you're going to look at something like, is Hank Hill a borderline abuser? You have to say no. Is he low in trade openness and not accepting of certain differences? Yes, but could you really call that abuse? No, I don't think so. I think this is an excellent response by Shaper Art. Of course, responding to that challenge question, I was thinking about Ward Cleaver from Leave it to Beaver, but I'm almost certain that it was intended to talk about contemporary or characters from the last 30 years. And I have a new challenge question for you guys as an icebreaker this week, because I was just listening to the radio, and they were talking about creating a new music genre, or just having a new labeling system called Cry Baby Rock. No, not emo, not pop punk, not certain types of alternative Cry Baby Rock. And my challenge question to you as an icebreaker is, what is one band that you think belongs in that new music genre label? Cry Baby Rock. You can post your responses down in the comments section down below. Okay, now I would like to go to a comment from NPC Porky about the Zodiac Killer that says you should do Gareth Penn for the debunking series next. 
I personally despise the guy for what he did to Michael O'Hare, but he is among the worst of the worst suspects around, or do one of that guy whose daughter claims he would bring her with him while committing the crimes. Now, the woman is named Deborah Perez, and is she really worthy of a debunking episode? I mean, I think she goes into the category of someone who is a 100% fraud. Now, what's her exact motivation? I'm not sure. Is she a huckster, grifter? This is the woman who also claimed that she was the illegitimate daughter of John F. Kennedy, and she said that her father was the Zodiac Killer, and he would drive her to the crime scenes, and she would hear the gunshots when he's committing the crimes at Lake Herman Road and Blue Rock Springs. Is that really worthy of a debunking series? I know I'm going to sound dismissive, but... She is a 100% fraud. She's not telling the truth. Maybe in her own mind, she is so deranged that she actually believes that it, it is happening. And that really is a mystery in itself. And I'm sure you guys have thought about this, looking at the Zodiac Killer and other true crime mysteries that we explore on this channel. And you're thinking, is this person telling the truth or not? And even if they're not telling the truth, well, what's going on? Are they crazy? Are they just really bad at their own, their research? Or do... They have some type of theory that they want to explore. Is there something that they're genuinely believing that they're trying to figure out and they're just connecting the dots in the wrong place? Because at the end of the day, there is a definitive answer about who was the Zodiac Killer, why were these crimes committed, are there credible solutions to the Z13 and the Z32 ciphers? And to respond to uh, that final point, I think there are absolutely credible solutions to the Z13 and Z32 ciphers. We just haven't found them yet. Maybe it'll be until the end of time before people solve the Z32. Then they say that the fewer symbols, it becomes more difficult. But with the Z32 cipher, there are only three characters that repeat. Um, just from memory, I think it's C-O and the, the delta sign. I thought that there was a very high chance that those things were hoaxes for a long time, that, okay, the first one was a simple substitution cipher solved by Donald Harden and Betty Harden. They're not the Zodiacs, I assure you. Well, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I don't believe they are. Anything's possible. But then I thought the 340 was a dud. It was a fake. It was a hoax. It was a red herring. There's no real meaning. That's why nobody can solve it. Hey, it turns out there is a solution to it. So um, that gives us some room to explore the Zodiac Killer mystery in a new way. And almost certainly, if the 340 has a solution, the Z32 and the Z13 most likely have real solutions as well. It's just they're very difficult to solve. The fewer amount of symbols in a cipher, the more difficult it is to crack. Richard Grinnell did post something on ZodiacCiphers.com talking about a possible solution to the Z32. And again, just off the top of my head, what did he say? Concerns radians and five inches along the radians. Richard can correct me if I misspoke that, and I'll double-check that at the end of the episode. I really should have double-checked that before the episode, but I didn't know I was going to be talking about that particular thing just right now. It just came to mind as we speak. About the ciphers, though, there's something very interesting in the most recent conversation I had on the Zodiac Killer interviews with the expert series on the Zodiac Killer channel. I'm also the host of that program, and I was talking to Anne Penn, who is the author of What If so Golden State Killer Zodiac Solved, and she's exploring her suspect, Joseph D'Angelo. She believes that the Golden State Killer and the Zodiac are one and the same, 
and I'm going to be 100% honest with you, I uh, do not agree with that. However, my biggest takeaways from that interview were that, number one, she believes that many of the unconfirmed crimes were actually committed by the Zodiac Killer, the 1962 murder of Ray Davis, the 1963 murder of Vern Smith, as well as Robert Domingos, Linda Edwards, the Swindle murders, but not the murder of Sherry Jo Bates. And I think she's the first person I've uh, talked to or read about that is very adamant that the Zodiac committed all of those unconfirmed crimes from Ray Davis to the Swindles. And yes, indeed, that the Zodiac is Sandy, the person who murdered Vern Smith on June 3rd of 1963, and then went on to murder Robert Domingos and Linda Edwards. And there's an enormous debate about that in the true crime world. Were those crimes actually committed by the same person, the murder of Vern Smith and the murder of Robert Domingos and Linda Edwards? But she did not include the murder of Sherry Jo Bates. She doesn't believe that that is genuine Zodiac activity. The point about the ciphers that I thought stood out to me was that she does not believe that David Orinchak's solution to the Z340 is correct. And I was like, well, what is the correct one? And she believes that Dirt Poor Richard's solution to the 340 is the correct one. And you can go over to his channel, Dirt Poor Richard, and watch how he solves the Z340. And that was something that Ann Penn pointed out, that he walks you through it in a very easy-to-understand manner. I also did a response to his video, and I was communicating with Dirt Poor Richard about how he solved the Z340. We corresponded a bit, and I did a response to his video on that exact subject. A lot of people, though, came away thinking that I believed that his solution was correct and Orrin Shacks was wrong. I said that I thought his was better, and they misinterpreted that line. No, I believe that David Orinchak, Yarl Van Eyck, and Sam Blake have the correct solution, but with Dirt Poor Richard's solution to the Z340, it has clues that we can explore. All it really says in the Orinchak solution, which again, I do believe to be the correct one, is that I'm not afraid of the gas chamber, that wasn't me on the TV, which brings up an interesting point about me. And then it goes on to say that I now have enough slaves for my life in paradise, slaves, paradise, death. And Penn did point out, though, that that final line seemed really bizarre, where it says slaves, paradise, death at the end of the 340. But I'll read to you Dirt Boar Richard's solution to the Z340 cipher. I feel bad. I'm Evil D. I felt like I needed killing. It's code I like. I roll tab. Add a letter I write. Life elitism. I like being famous, like training my slave. I did like two better. First to kill was Diane. I started telling myself I would kill all. Berryessa and Blue Rock to killing a kid. I have my days kill. Yeah, yeah, that's what it says. I have my days kill. I'd slaves count. Killed a kid. Florida. Kill and tell all. I killed the girl on Wild Elm. Felt I shouldn't. I killed Mono Lake RN. And then there's a Zodiac symbol there. And as I said, that one gives you clues that you can explore. But the FBI has signed off on David Orinchak's solution, as well as Jarl Van Eyck and Sam Blake, who worked on that. And I do believe that that one is correct. And I was talking to um, Ann Penn about this, and you can hear our full interview on the Zodiac Killer interviews uh, with the Experts series. And I was like, well, who did the Zodiac murder in Florida? Who's the girl on Wild Elm? And, you know, it's still somewhat of a mystery 
But I think it was Professor Stewart who pointed out something about Dirt Poor Richard's solution, and I don't mean to knock the guy. I do appreciate all of the effort that he put into creating these solutions, not only to the C340, but also the Z13, Z32, and even solving the misspellings in the Riverside Confession. But I think Professor Stewart said, the Z340 here contains too many words that are not completely in sentences. And even though the Zodiac Killer misspelled a lot of words, he tended to write in full sentences. And I think, uh, yeah, yeah, let's just say that he wrote in full sentences. I'll read the Z340 solution from Dirt Poor Richard again. I feel bad. I'm evil D. I felt like I needed killing. It's code I like. I roll tab. Add a letter. I write life elitism. That's just two words standing alone. I like being famous. Like training my slave, incomplete sentence. I did like two better. First to kill was Diane. I started telling myself I would kill all. Berryessa and Blue Rock to killing a kid. Lots of sentence fragments. I have my days kill. Um, I guess incorrect grammar there. I'd made slaves count. Killed a kid. Florida. All kinds of disconnection there. So, and you know, it goes on for a little bit, but I didn't definitely understand where somebody like Professor Stewart was coming from. I mean, and as I said, the um, FBI has signed off, so perhaps David Ornchak, Earl Van Eyck, and Sam Blake did get the correct solution, and I know some people want to keep the mystery going, and people are going to have their doubts. And Blaine Blaine, actually, was someone who called out both Ornchak and Dirt Poor Richard, saying that neither one of them solved the 340 correctly, and he will reveal a new solution to the 340 cipher. Some people just cannot let the mystery rest, and so on. So, last Friday, for the Anything Goes segment, I did an episode which was in a completely different fashion. I asked you guys the question, it's called, Who is the Best True Crime YouTuber? And a lot of you guys said, Black Box Online Radio, you are all awesome. I mean, double awesome. But, we had some responses to that one. First, Jennifer Wise says, Kendall Ray is so-so. In my opinion, she makes lots of mistakes. I'm really not sure about that. I watched one video about her that uh, ZodiacKiller.com sent me about just that. The Zodiac Killer and Gary Francis post a couple weeks ago when they claimed that they found the Zodiac Killer, the case breakers, and this journalist named Dale Julen claimed that they had solved the Zodiac Killer mystery. I watched my first ever video from Kendall Ray, first one I had ever seen. That one seemed pretty good, and as I said, she was really making sure that the audience could understand but um, I'll take your word for it there, Jennifer. A lot of you guys responded to that challenge question by saying Stephanie Harlow is the best true crime YouTuber. I absolutely love Stephanie Harlow stuff. I watch her channel very frequently. And Teresa Carter, though, has something to say about that. Stephanie Harlow has the best true crime channel that I watch. I love all of Stephanie's detail-oriented research put forth into every true crime episode. She has one of the newest true crime channels, yet I always get additional information from her channel after watching every other true crime channel on YouTube regarding the same exact cases. Anyone out there reading this comment should check out her channel for sure. Walter says, she is a badass. She is absolutely thorough. She leaves no stone unturned. If you want the full, complete story on a case, she is the woman. Teresa then continued by saying, What I found the most interesting about Stephanie Harlow's Missy Beavers coverage is that she stated Missy Beavers was shot, which no one else has ever said. I've researched a ton of Missy Beavers news articles and videos as well, 
and could not find anything stating that she was shot, only that she, Missy, did have a gun, I believe, in her car. Has anyone else come across this news regarding Missy Beavers being shot? Very curious. And that is, of course, talking about the murder of Missy Beavers in 2016 in Midlothian, Texas. Missy Beavers was murdered after showing up at a church where she was set to lead a fitness boot camp. She was a personal trainer. And prior to the murder, there's a video of a suspect, and I do say suspect because there's never been a conviction. There's this suspect walking up and down the halls of the church wearing some type of police costume. There's a helmet with a headlamp, and there's a vest that says police, and it seems like tactical gear, except for the helmet, which seems to be some type of knockoff. And Missy Beaver's own husband even pointed out that that appears to be some type of either costume helmet or maybe a paintball helmet, something to that effect. So, has anyone ever pointed out the fact that Missy Beaver's was murdered by a gunshot? I first learned about that. From the comments section on YouTube, somebody pointed out that it was in one of the case file documents, and then that case file document made its way onto the Lord Nart's channel. I've heard John Lorden talk about that. Now, Missy did have a gun, and um, it was in her truck, because somebody else later on wrote a comment in on Black Box All Night Radio saying Missy Beavers was murdered by a gunshot, and it was with her own concealed carry. And I just read off the comment in my 2020 update on the murder of Missy Beavers. And Tim Koval of Gumshoe Stories, who is perhaps the biggest authority on the internet, so said Stephanie Harlow, actually, biggest authority on the internet about the murder of Missy Beavers, uh, wrote into the channel just to, um, you know, give his thanks for doing a Missy Beavers episode. And one point he wanted to clarify was Missy Beavers was indeed murdered by a gunshot. But it was not from her gun. Her gun, her concealed carry, was in her truck at the time. So she was a gun owner, but that was not the gun that was used to kill her. And I think by now, in 2021, at the time of this recording, people are very much aware that Missy Beavers was murdered by a gunshot. It must have been pure disinfo on, that was going out in the news. Because you had the very famous news clip of Nancy Grace talking about I'm not going to do the Nancy Grace voice I was about to, but she was killed by puncture wounds, not stab wounds. Because you see the perpetrator, alleged perpetrator in the church, using what appears to be a hammer of some sorts. Or, I mean, was she killed with the sharp side of a hammer or a pick? If she had been stabbed, they would have said stab wounds. But because they said puncture wounds, it was most likely she was killed with some type of object like a hammer or uh, some type of ice pick, or something to that effect. But that just appears to be pure disinfo. Sometimes the authorities genuinely want the disinfo going out there, because it can put suspects in a false sense of security. Now, if you would like to hear more about the murder of Missy Beavers, I do recommend the Lord and Arts channel, Gumshoe Stories by Tim Koval on YouTube. He has excellent stuff. I mean, absolutely up there. And this is all in addition to Stephanie Harlow's um, thing. Stephanie Harlow pointed me toward Gumshoe Stories, but I think I had heard Tim interviewed in a few more places. And of course, Aaron Stoner's channel. Aaron Stoner is one that is um, a YouTube channel that is just so underrated, and he makes some very bold attempts at contributing things to these mysteries, because he's the guy that was behind the Missy Beavers composite sketch. It's really Aaron working 
with a forensic artist, and they created this composite sketch based on some of the video footage of a car that was also somewhat nearby, a silver Nissan Ultima that was seen in a sporting goods store parking lot down the street, down the road, rather, from the church where Missy Beavers was murdered. And more people need to just talk about that and look at the composite sketch. The other coverage that I highly recommend from Aaron Stoner's channel is his stuff on the murder of Elijah Wood, also known as the Racetrack Murder, where a convenience store clerk was murdered by someone, and there just seems to be no motive for it, nothing was stolen, and so on. And it turned into the exact same thing as the Missy Beavers case. They couldn't find out, is this person a man or a woman? Is there a man or a woman in that costume? And so on. And in both of those instances, I strongly believe that Missy Beavers was murdered by a man and Elijah Wood was murdered by a man. But people can dispute that all they want with me in the comment section down below. And we have a comment from Elise who uh, responded to the episode, Maura Murray, All is One Theory. And that's an older episode, however. Elise says, The lady seen a cop most likely at her vehicle after they staged the crash. That's why she said he, law enforcement cover-up, but for what and why. I think um, Elise is proposing that Maura Murray disappeared because of a law enforcement cover-up, some malicious activity on the part of law enforcement. And I talked a lot about Maura Murray in 2019 as well as in 2020, and I confess to you guys that I am a little bit rusty on those details as well, but this theory has been widely discussed, that the reason why Maura Murray disappeared was because of illegal activities by the responding police officers. Maura Murray disappeared on February 9th of 2004 after possibly crashing her car into a snowbank, and the mainstream narrative is, the car crashes into a snowbank, Moore gets out of the car, a bus driver named Butch Atwood, who's driving a school bus, comes by and says, hey, do you need help? Do you need me to call somebody? Moore says to him, no, I already called AAA. Butch Atwood knew that wasn't true because there wasn't cell service in the area, so he drove home, and he sat in the uh, school bus for a while, doing some paperwork, and he may have gone in the house first and talked to his wife and then went back to the school bus to do paperwork because that's what he normally did. And his wife, Barbara, gets on the phone, and the police um, are asking her, her, okay, the 911 dispatcher, excuse me, is asking her, okay, where's the girl now? And Barbara says, I have no idea where she is, and Maura was never seen again. Now, what is the law enforcement theory in the disappearance of Maura Murray. I had one episode discussing this on Black Box Online Radio that I recorded in about 2017. It was like seven minutes long, and I accidentally deleted it. And I called it the wildest, craziest theory in the Maura Murray mystery. And that is that Moore's car broke down on the side of the road, and a police officer came by to help her, and that she was assaulted, beaten, raped in the snow, and then the officer hid her body in the trunk of his car. That was a real theory that people were discussing from time to time. And I think that Elise might be pondering some things about that. I just think that that is too far out to truly explore. But here's something else, though, about the police cover-up theory, because this happens in a couple different ways. The first is that Mora was never in the town of Haverhill, New Hampshire, driving Route 112, 
going around that curve that it wasn't even more Murray who was involved with the car crash. And multiple people have written in trying to persuade me that Maura Murray wasn't the driver, that that wasn't her behind the wheel. It was all staged. You heard Elise say that in the comment there. It was all staged and law enforcement is responsible. There are two big problems with that. The first one is that the search dogs lost her scent 100 feet from the crash site, which means that there is evidence that she was in Haverhill, New Hampshire, that isn't, you know, 100% certifiable proof. I mean, also, Butch Atwood's witness sighting of Maura Murray, he has passed away. But there is evidence that Maura was in the state of New Hampshire. Now, did law enforcement crash her car? Did somebody else just pull Maura Murray's car over to the side of the road? You have the same problem with the tandem driver theory that was pushed by he who must not be named. The guy who wrote the True Crime Addict book, we don't say his name on this channel, but he wrote a book called True Crime Addict about this, and he was talking about the tandem driver theory that Maura Murray intentionally crashed the car and then she ran off to Canada. Whether it's someone staging the accident, or it's Maura staging the accident herself, why do that in one of the most well-lit, populated areas along this back road in New Hampshire when you had total darkness on either side of you, 500 meters that way and 500 meters that way. I mean, the whole point is they could have found a much more secluded area to stage the crash instead of having an enormous amount of possibilities for witnesses to come by. Why do that? Partnered with the fact that, as I said, witness sighting, search dogs, that also suggests that there was a, a real crash by Mora, or that her car genuinely went off the road. Now, was it the car actually still drivable? Most likely, yes. It's just there could have been a short malfunction that I don't want to get into right now. The podcast, 107 Degrees, has explored that in depth. Um, Aaron and Ethan, big shout out to them. They did a lot of great work on the disappearance of Maura Murray, 107 Degrees. And of course, you can visit the Missing Maura Murray podcast. Just skip over the episodes with Hugh Must Not Be Named. And then, one final piece of rebuttal to any type of person staging the Maura Murray crash scene. A rag in the tailpipe. There was a rag found in the tailpipe of her car. That rag came from the emergency kit in the trunk of Moore Murray's black Saturn. How would somebody have known to put that there? I mean, why is that there? Now, you can debate this with me all you want. You can tell me why you think there's a rag in the tailpipe of the car. I've heard every theory under the sun. Some people think that it was genuinely there to help old rust bucket cars get a little bit more pressure in the system. Or some people think that it was put there as an intentional sabotage. Or then, there is the other final possibility, which I do believe, I do believe, and that is that Moore Murray's Black Saturn had this problem where when the car was in park, smoke would continue to come out of the exhaust pipe. So I, I learned about this from 107 Degrees, something they brought up, but I do agree with it, that Mora put the rag in the tailpipe herself not to force it down there to give engine pressure or anything or whatever, but it was meant to just keep smoke from pouring out of the exhaust so no one would draw attention to it, so no one would be 
suspicious, so the car wouldn't draw attention to other people is what I really should have said. That's what I think that is. I don't think it's anything outrageous. I don't think it's a sabotage. And I don't see that type of behavior coming from someone who staged the accident. I see that coming from Maura Murray herself. Now, here is something that I find much more difficult to explain. And this comes from the researcher Guy Parody when he stated that Maura Murray's car had the damage that was inconsistent with hitting a tree and inconsistent with crashing into a snowbank. The damage on her car came from going under a larger vehicle. Now, I said that this law enforcement cover-up takes many different theories. One theory is... Or did I say that this theory takes many different theories? Excuse me. This theory takes many different forms. I could have also said this theory takes many different shapes, but no, this theory does not take many different theories. This theory takes many different shapes, forms, and theories. No, just kidding. This theory takes many different forms. And that is that Maura Murray was involved in a car accident with the bus driver, Butch Atwood, that either he gently backed up his car and hit her hood, or that she may have gone under his car at a very slow speed. Guy Parody said this came from a vehicle larger, like a vehicle that's higher off the ground, such as a truck perhaps, or maybe even a school bus, backing up and hitting Moore's car. Maybe she was parked illegally or something. And then Butch Atwood was on very good terms with a police officer named Cecil Smith, even to the point where it's rumored that they were drinking buddies, but... Any connection between the two of them was denied, or they just, like, even Butch Atwood's widow, Barbara, denies that that happens. Or she hasn't shared a lot about that. She's interviewed here on YouTube on Jason Habert's channel. And that Butch Atwood was covering for some member of law enforcement who did just that. Abducted Mora and did something to her, ending her life. And that sounds like one of the more heinous and sinister ends to the mystery of what happened to Mora Murray. But can you see how people would put that narrative into fashion? First, Moore and Butch get into this small auto collision, and he says, Hey, I know some people at the police department. We'll call, we'll file the report, but nothing bad will happen to you. And they do that, and then they even decide to move the vehicle to a more suitable place so it's not blocking the traffic or something. And then that officer abducted Moore Murray, and that's where the... That's where the event took place that ended her life. In that narrative, I can comprehend it. I can follow it. Not this whole thing about she was never in the town in New Hampshire at all. She was never in Haverhill. She was never driving Route 112. That stuff I can't comprehend. And I, if I can be 100% honest with you guys, I don't believe that it's accurate. The other one, well, I'm somewhat open to it, of course. I mean, this is an unsolved case. And now I would like to divert to something, if I'm using the word divert correctly, to something called True Crime Talk Radio, where I used to do this segment on Tuesdays, True Crime Talk Radio Tuesday, right, has a nice ring to it, and it would be all about responding to content in the media in various ways, because with the AMAs, it's about responding to your questions and comments about these true crime cases, and any subject, really, I mean, ask me anything, any subject, a fair game, if you want to talk about even things like TV shows, as I said at the beginning, 
True Crime Talk Radio was mostly about responding to different forms of media, whether there's an article about this subject, or someone did a podcast about this, or a documentary about that. But I'm gonna blend it all in together because I just, um, well, I miss doing that. I really miss the five-day-a-week format. Sometimes I used to do the show seven days a week back when I was doing the debunking series on Saturday and Sunday, and then, you know, Monday with Zodiac Mondays, True Crime Talk Radio, the AMAs, the disappearance of Donna Lass, and the, uh, Anything Goes segment on Friday. I absolutely love doing that. It's just there aren't enough hours in the day. I wish there were. So you're getting the abridged versions of Black Box Online Radio. One day I hope I could be like one of those people and just does the three-hour show Monday through Friday. In the future, let's see. But um, I came across this news article that was posted on Facebook and from odyssey.com, and it's actually run by the WFAN radio page, but they're sharing it through odyssey.com and it's talking about how did the baltimore orioles fake a power outage to preserve cal ripkin's iron man streak and this is mostly a true crime channel and i assure you this is true crime related but when people think of the true crime world i doubt they really think about fist fights fraudulent behavior assaults and so on but let's um read this article here did a fistfight with Kevin Costner nearly cost Cal Ripken Jr. his record games played streak? Crazy as that sounds, the rumor's been out there for quite some time while Cal Ripken and Kevin Costner have repeatedly denied it, dismissing their reported tiff as little more than tabloid fodder and a number of baseball conspiracy theorists, particularly those with ties to the Orioles, would say otherwise. Baseball conspiracy theories. I love humanity. The story goes that on Friday, August 14, 1997, Cal Ripken came home to find the three-time Oscar nominee, whom he had befriended years earlier, in bed with his then-wife Kelly, prompting a physical altercation that left the all-star shortstop too beat up to play that Saturday night's game against the Mariners. Fearful of missing his first game since 1982, Cal Ripken, as a legend would have it, as the legend would have it, excuse me, called in a favor asking the Orioles to stage a power outage at Camden Yards so that they would postpone the game until Sunday. Did Kevin Costner beat up Cal Ripken? I don't know. I mean, it, I'm not really, like, the best person in making these types of judgments, but if you have a celebrity boxing match in 1997, Cal Ripken Jr. versus Kevin Costner, professional athlete versus actor, and, and, you know, I mean, he doesn't have the opportunity to swing a bat or anything. I mean, if they had weapons involved, Cal Ripken Jr. would beat the crap out of Kevin Costner, but I think even without weapons, Cal Ripken Jr. would win in a fight against Kevin Costner. I don't know, maybe he, um, maybe he got in shape for a movie or something, and he could overpower Cal Ripken Jr. This is a weird story. If true, not only would that tarnish the Hall of Famer's squeaky clean image, but it would also raise questions about the validity of his record streak of 2,632 consecutive games played. Well, um, as far as the squeaky clean image, I remember something. Back when Sammy Sosa got in trouble for playing with a corked bat, and he was suspended and fine. And his response was, I'm only getting singled out because I'm Latin. And I'm like, I don't know if people really use that expression in English because you're Latin. Latino, Latina, Latinx. 
But um, I don't, have you? I don't remember anybody being discriminated against for being Latin. Okay, firstly, Sammy, and also, a sports reporter said, "Now look here. If this were Cal Ripken Jr., he would have been suspended too." Meaning that Cal Ripken Jr. was someone who had a squeaky clean image in Major League Baseball. But let's go here. So uh, Cal Ripken Jr.'s Iron Man streak was ended by his own volition a year after his rumors spat with the Field of Dreams actor. Sam Dingman and Mac Montenden, both lifelong Orioles fans, set out to find the truth in their new podcast series, The Rumor, which debuted on the Blue Wire Podcast Network on October 25th. Dingman and Montenden began investigating the Ripken-Costner rumor over a year ago and will release their findings over five or six installments with new episodes dropping each Monday. If you're truly curious um, about that, you can listen to this podcast, The Rumor, and I'm in the category of I'm extremely curious when I listen to six podcast episodes, even if they're like 30 minutes a piece about it. Probably not, because, I mean, I absolutely love baseball conspiracy theories, This, even though I don't know too many of them. I would listen to a whole show on baseball conspiracy theories. We're talking about hour-long episodes. If it's only devoted to this one, or out of all the aspects of conspiracy theories of the true crime world, you're going to zone in on this. Did Kevin Costner beat up Cal Ripken Jr., and then he staged the power outage to preserve his Iron Man streak? I don't know, but if you guys want to listen to it, you can. It's called The Rumor, available on the Blue Wire Network. I'm not saying anything other than what I've just said, but it's added to the soup of the mystique that exists around the world, Dingman said, who noted that Costner was often photographed with Cal Ripken, even taking ground balls with him before Orioles games on occasion. And Kevin Costner, of course, has done a couple of baseball films himself. I think we uh, don't need a recap of that, but, but by the time this happened, Cal Ripken had already broken Lou Gehrig's record, and he was well past it, explained Digman. It really raises the interesting question, I think, because if you're an Orioles fan, the idea that an ego or sense of personal ambition would have anything to do with Cal Ripken's pursuit of the consecutive game streak didn't even enter your head. So, I mean, that's, a, I think, a big strike against this rumor that he staged a power rise to preserve the Iron Man streak if he had already broken Lou Gehrig's record. What was that, 2,131 games and Cal Ripken had 2,132 and then went on to get 2,622, but 32, excuse me. Okay, I mean, I think you can get the idea. They're throwing a little bit of water on that rumor. However, I'm very curious. I don't know if I would sit through six episodes only on that. Like, why does it have to be only on that one rumor? Like, if they just want to do sports rumors, oh yeah, sign me up. If it's like one hour on this Cal Ripken, Kevin Costner story, and then next week they do something else about, did you ever hear the rumor about O.J. Simpson and that he, um, no, sorry, too much, too soon? Okay, moving away from dark humor and to something that is much more optimistic, I found this article by a guy named Art Bell called A Dream Come True, and it's in the For Your Business section. And I was like, Art Bell, Art Bell, where do I know that name from? And this one, I assure you, is not true crime related, not true crime talk radio, not ask me anything. This is just something that I wanted to share with you guys, because at the end of the AMAs, I used to do a daily or weekly question about assertiveness, because I would get them, some things about narcissism and assertiveness sent to my Gmail account. 
and it was about psychology, more or less, assertiveness and narcissism. Yeah, that's a real way to hook people in. No, but it was about psychology. And this one is about optimism. It's called A Dream Come True by Art Bell. The subtitle is Consistent Hustle and Networking Can Open Vocational Doors. Let's have a read. Comedy has been my passion ever since I was young, but I have never been a comedian, so how could I expect to get a job in the business? My first step was to find a job, any job related to comedy. In 1983, I was hired as a financial analyst at HBO. Definitely not my dream job, but because HBO produced stand-up comedy, it was a step in the right direction. Soon I started talking about an idea that I had for years. Why not create an all-comedy channel? I pitched my concept to HBO's head of programming, who told me the idea was impractical, unnecessary, and naive. But I was determined to keep the idea alive. One day I mentioned it to the vice president of new business, and to my surprise, he said, Let's go see the chairman. A few minutes later, I found myself in the office of HBO's chairman and CEO pitching the comedy channel. He got it. Nine months later, HBO launched the Comedy Channel, which quickly morphed into a new name, Comedy Central. I was named Vice President of Programming for the new venture, and later I became Head of Programming and Marketing for Comedy Central. My persistence had paid off. You too can land your dream job. Here's what I learned about the path to creating mine. First, get a job at a company with a product that you're passionate about. For me, that was HBO. You may have to leverage whatever skills, talents, and experience you have to get the job. HBO needed someone who could build financial models, and I learned how to do that in college. Second, be a star in your current job, even if you don't love it. I didn't want to build financial models, but I worked hard, hoping that that would get me the job closer to programming. It worked. I moved to new business development and, as an analyst, worked with seasoned television programmers. Third, talk with colleagues about your passion and what you'd like to do. I told my coworker and my bosses and a lot of other people around the company about my interest in comedy, and if I had pitched Comedy Central, they never would have mentioned my desire to work in the comedy programming, but they might have given me the job to or they might have given the job to a more experienced comedy executive. Instead, they took a chance on me because of my passion. And this was written by Art Bell, former media executive best known for HBO, and creating the Comedy, the comedy Channel, which went on to become Comedy Central. So I just wanted to include with a small note of optimism, I was reading this thing here in uh, For Your Business, and I thought that it was pretty cool. That's how Comedy Central was created, because somebody had a plan, they had a dream. I have a dream, and he didn't give up. Okay, anybody can weigh into any of the topics that we've talked about in this episode. The Zodiac Killer, Maura Murray, the murder of Missy Beavers, the rumor about Cal Ripken and Kevin Costner, and also about, if you want to talk about Comedy Central, and don't forget that challenge question, that I asked you guys, what band would you put in the genre known as Cry Baby Rock? Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can follow me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. There's also a page for Black Box Online Radio over there. And, of course, Instagram, BlackboxNid88. The best way to get in touch, though, is just the comments section here on YouTube. 
say anything you want in the comment section down below. If you want to challenge me on things, challenge me. If you want to dispute anything that I said about the disappearance of Maura Murray, please put that in the comments section as well. And what do you think about this uh, rumor with Kevin Costner and Cal Ripken Jr.? And I swear I would think that Cal Ripken would win in a fist fight between the two of them, but uh, maybe Kevin Costner could surprise me. After all, he was the postman. I mean, okay, that was the... the Oh, moving on. Okay, so anybody can write the show at those places that I just stated, and I will see you over there on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.